Welcome to Elemental Collision. My name is Dave Graham. Today you're going to get a chance to listen to my keynote presentation on bias in AI for the Northern Ireland Science Festival held on Tuesday, the 23rd of February. Let's have a listen. All right. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Alistair. It's a great introduction. I hate talking about myself, so I'll keep that noise to a minimum here. Uh, today, I really would like to talk about bias, what we call bias in the machine, right? Addressing bias in our AI-driven world. Um, like Alistair said, I work for Dell Technologies. I'm part of the Thought Leadership and Emerging Technologies messaging team there. So I'll give you a little background about myself. Yes, that is me staring off wistfully into the distance. Um, I spent the last two weeks in Ireland. Uh, gratefully, my partner lives there. Um, so a little bit, again, like I said, I work for Dell Technologies. I look at how emerging technologies um, furthers both social transformation as well as how we can use technology to transform our daily lives. Um, part of this is a passion thing. My background is I came out of social work. Uh, I have two degrees in social work, a bachelor's in, a, not in social work per se, but in, in psychology and clinical counseling worked as a bit worked for the state of Massachusetts as a social work, social worker. And it's part of that. It's kind of that inevitable collision between, you know, what we, what we construe to be real life and what people actually experience. And, and I was very formative into my views and how carrying society into technology or to carrying technology back into society was, um, was built. Yeah. The other half of my brain is kind of devoted to my PhD work, uh, which I am uh, down at the university college of Dublin, uh, part of their smart lab for in, in the school of inclusive design, um, where I'm really looking at how data, uh, is used for social agency. You know, how do we take what we're creating and consuming and how do we turn that into something that's more livable for us, um, and changes society. Um, token kid shot here. This is really what I'm all about. Like this, you know, these two, my two girls and how this world is changing every single day for them is really everything that we work towards. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then pronouns, uh, just because, you know, it's, we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. Obviously, um, I'm, I'm he, him. So bias, it's a, it's a pretty heady topic, right? We, uh, we hear about bias and ethics all the time and, and, and to, I think to a certain point, it gets tokenized a little bit. But when it comes to bias, we all start with presuppositions. We all start with an idea about the world around us. And while we say that can lead to bias, it always leads to biases. We always experience and we always color and shape our world in a way that we, that we, uh, we perceive. The grand paradox that we're dealing with here, of course, is the idea that um, AI can't be biased because it's just maths. It's just algorithms put together that process data. You know, we, you know, growing up in, in the in the 80s, I know I'm aging myself a little bit here. We had the concept of garbage in and garbage out. I mean, that concepts probably existed for millennia at this point, but we like to say, hey, everything that you feed into the machine is going to somehow get spit out on the other end, right? So it's only operating based on what it's being fed. And to a certain level, that's true. But AI is built by humans, right? We have a volitional role in how AI is shaped and created. So while the machine can be considered AI, we are as, very, as much in the machine as the algorithms that we built. And consequently, since it's built by humans, it's going to come with biases that are unique to our conditions. 
as human beings, the world that we grew up in, the world that we experienced, the places we've been, the people we've seen, talked to, and interacted with. So these biases are present in how we think. Now, this is a huge eye chart, so I apologize really, 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 really uh, much for this. And this is the cognitive bias side of of what we're looking at. So this is 187 different biases that we all are experienced, that we all experience, right? And it's kind of broken down into these little quadrants, and I won't, won't spend too much time here. All this is pointing at the fact that we are surrounded by it, that our brain processes this every single day um, from the way that we store memories to the way that we draw to details that um, mirror our own beliefs to the way that we imagine things and people that we're familiar with or fond of to the way that we act and how we perceive that we should act within organizations in this. And all these biases feed into, like I said, how we act. 2020 has been a year of social foment for all intents and purposes, right? We have, and I'm purposely using some images that are not designed to make you feel comfortable. Why? Because part of what we need to do when we confront our biases is to understand that they have real world implications. So part of this real world implication then is we have the issue of George Floyd or any of the people of color that suffered under um, misconstrued biases. Yes, that's the police officer that knelt on George Floyd's neck this past year and caused amazing, and I mean amazing in the most dreadful way, murdered a harmless individual, right? But his bias was that since George Floyd had previous encounters with the law, he must be someone who uh, should be taken down, should be treated differently than anybody else. And that's it's terrible, but that's a bias that was exemplified. How about COVID? We, uh, you know, people tried to characterize or tried to, you know, blame China for the genesis of this. And regardless of your political affiliation, your geopolitical understanding, we called it the Wuhan flu, right? It was tossed around here in America to the detriment of the Asian Americans and Asian folks around the world. But like this, I'm not, you know, we took our bias. So it was, it was made in the lab in China, which is proven to be patently false. And we applied that to a people group around the world. And all of a sudden this is, you know, we're blaming this on innocence. We're blaming this on people. So you can see the real world implications of this bias. Now, this is just us thinking. Now, when we start to apply this to AI, we have to look at it a little bit differently. So bias is rampant in places and organizations that use AI. And yes, I'm calling things out here as well. Clearview AI um, basically the ultimate scraping tool for technology and bias. It goes and gathers all this information, puts together a nice, neat little package and provides that to law enforcement services. You can buy, you know, basically a clearly labeled set of data. Now it relies on the fact that, you know, bad actors are going to use this. And by bad actors, I mean people with, you know, probable bad intent. Um, Amazon recognition, which is a facial recognition service as well. This was in the news in as much as the last couple of years um, for Amazon putting a halt on the use of this, or at least a pause, not a true halt. But why? Well, because it was being used in ways, the underlying underpinnings, 
data. It wasn't that the algorithm was bad. It was that the data that was being fed to it was from public records, which inevitably were biased towards people of color and were using mugshots. You know, it's all in the news. How about mortgage and lending? It's something that, uh, especially for folks my age, <laughs> this has real-world implications. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are two institutions here in the United States. Well, Wells Fargo is a massive multinational bank. Well, it was found out that some of the practices and algorithms that they were using disp- you know, were disproportionately favoring those who had higher risk, which led to the t- 2008 mortgage crisis. You know, all these things, hiring practices within these organizations as well. The implications were massive. Social media. I mean, we only have to look at what happened through this past couple of, you know, this past year with COVID and American politics or politics at large, if you will, to see what the implications of that are. Uh, When it came to Twitter, how you could post a white person's picture and a person of color's picture, and it would always sample to the white person or it would block out the person of color's picture and within a post or Facebook, the algorithm used to determine what news rose to the top being inimically biased towards one particular viewpoint or not. Now these are real world examples and something that strikes even closer to home. How about healthcare and insurance? Sure. Not everybody has private, not everybody has private healthcare. Uh, it's a, it's a, a unique affliction, let's say to, to the United States as well. Um, And that's a whole other argument for another time. But when you start to look at how people are cared for in the midst of their um, crisis, you start to recognize that the way that these machines made decisions, the way that these algorithms made decisions was based on bad data. It was based on bad information that was leading to problems with their care. And so pull this out. And I have references for every single one of these things. So again, as a cursory topic, we're not trying to go in deep and how you should change your, you know, convolutions and your neural nets to reflect a better reality. But I'm going to give you a call to action and something that we need to be careful of. And I'm going to start with uh, an excellent quote from Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Uh, from his book, Hocus Pocus. A flaw in a human character is that everybody wants to build. We all want to be creative, right? We all want to build these algorithms. We all want to create the next best thing. And nobody wants to do the maintenance. Maintenance is an important part of creation in as much as we want to be the creators. We want to do those startups. We want to build amazing things. And I've had the pleasure of working with Alistair over the past year on mentoring programs and working with Chris McClellan over at Ignite Northern Ireland and seeing some incredible things being built. But a lot of times the building process is always is, is the excitement. That's that, that, endorphin kick or that dopamine push, right? We want this. We want to believe that this is the strong, the best thing possible, but we don't want to do the work that continues to maintain it, that continues to move it on. And I'm sure that we'll discuss a little bit on this on the panel uh, as well. But maintenance is an important part of this. It's not just a creation. So I proposed a real, real basic kind of cyclical um, process, if you will. And, and, Again, you can take issue with my words here, and I'm not a developer by any stretch of imagination. I understand enough about it to be dangerous. But the process I'm saying here is, first, we need to identify. You got to know what your biases are. I'm white. I'm American. I'm a male. I have privilege. I'm highly educated by all intents and processes. I have a bachelor's, a master's, and now a PhD that I'm working on. Like, I understand that my viewpoint 
is going to gear me towards a certain way. I don't know all of my biases. and I don't think there's a way for me to know everything until I encounter these moments. But also part of that identification is knowing what your market is, knowing who your targeted users are, and the potential impact or harm of what you're building. So you need to ask the tough questions. What are my biases towards the application I'm building, my business that I'm building, the algorithm that I'm building? And then what happens when these are actually applied? Curation, huge part of what we do. We talk about labeling within, within artificial intelligence. Your data sources need to be inspected and understood. Do you know where it came from? Do you know what this data set contains? Is there spurious information and in is there information that was gain, uh, gained from a very, very specific population with a very, very specific niche or application for it? So who created it and why? Understanding a little bit the volition of those who created it. Then you're going to build, right? We've identified it. We've curated it. Well, now we're going to build it. We need to build our algorithms responsibly and incorporate feedback mechanisms that are human-driven. I should have put an emphasis on that. As much as we may not like the fact of other people inspecting our code, inspecting our processes, inspecting what we do, there is rational thought behind it. Many of us have unique viewpoints that actually can bring up causes for concern. We want to look at both the positive, those words of affirmation. You built something that's really, really awesome. You should continue. And we need to look at the negative side as well. I think you're heading down the wrong direction. And be willing to solicit and process and incorporate that feedback. And then you're going to test and iterate. You're going to look at these algorithms and be willing to review the results. It's similar to what you see in education in testing a scientific process. Your hypothesis is what you're going to test. If your hypothesis is proven wrong, it's not a failure. It just means that you achieved a result that wasn't what you were expecting. So go back, figure out what that next process is. Ask the questions. If this moves into production, will the results I identified initially be validated? And if not, that's okay too. Uh, these are three incredible women. I have uh, very, very little interaction with them, but I've interacted with what they have done. Starting from left, Tim Gebru, who just recently was uh, released, fired, let's be honest, from Google for attempting to cause um, people to think about ethics and bias within AI. And I say that intentionally. She stepped up and said something that we're doing is wrong, and she was mishandled uh, completely inappropriately, I might add. Her work is seminal in this area. Professor Genevieve Bell, who's out of Australia, is an incredible, incredible person um, within the ethics and, bi and, and bias space within AI. She works for Intel. Um, her TED Talks are excellent. And then Rachel Thomas at University of California, San Francisco, who runs Fast.AI, another very, very powerful woman in this space. You know, they agitate. They attempt to do maintenance do the hard work as much as possible. They're the ones asking those tough questions saying, are we doing this the right way? And that's part of the maintenance process. So the opportunity just to close things up here. Yes. Eliminating bias is an ideal state. Uh, I, I hope it's achieved in my lifetime. <laughs> I don't know that it will. Um, and I'm getting older by the day. So just the fact that it may never fully be realized doesn't mean that we shouldn't stop trying to do that. Speaking up and speaking out, the forcing function of social transformation, uh, you know, I can't breathe 
if you remember anything from George Floyd, it's I can't breathe. That was a forcing function. And that the dominoes falling since that statement was made caused incredible amounts of transformation, some positive, some negative. But the forcing function that we have by speaking up and speaking out is powerful. And you got to realize that you're not necessarily the only voice in the room. You are not alone. There are other people in your organizations, in the company. Surround yourself by people who are willing to challenge your ideals and are willing to challenge the ideals of the establishment, so to speak. Education. There is no excuse for ignorance. I got the pleasure of talking with Dr. Helen Zidon uh, down in Dublin. I'm doing on one of the podcasts that I uh, am, am delightfully able to, to co-host. And she said it this way. There is no excuse for ignorance. There isn't. There are so many resources at our fingertips, whether you're in academia or not, there is no excuse for this. So I put up AIethicist.org as a great place to start. It's a collection. It's pledges from people that have you know, decided to turn their lives uh, and their missions into developing ethical AI. Finally, helping others. We're all part of a global community. The fact that I'm here in Boston and able to talk to you in Northern Ireland or wherever you are in the world shows this kind of community focus. If I can impact, impart change or I can impart the ideas or the seeds of change from here, what more could we do out there in the world? Uh, ending with uh, a quote from a, a gentleman uh, whose book is called Morality. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who recently um, departed this mortal coil, he wrote this in like the first chapter even. If we focus on the I and lose the we, if we act on self-interest without a commitment to the common good, if we focus on self-esteem and lose our care for others, we will lose much else. And that in a nutshell is exactly what we're trying to drive here. We lose so much by allowing these biases to step into what we do. If we're not willing to be part of the machine, if we're not willing to change the focus in the area and the nature of what we do within the machine, if we're not willing to confront this, if we're not willing to do the maintenance, not only the creation, but the maintenance and ongoing at that, then we're going to lose so much else. So, Thank you for attending. Uh, I would say this is my TED talk, but thanks for attending today's uh, today's keynote. Dave, I should add, you made a, a, a topic which um, potentially could have been all about algorithms, all about people. Um, and I think that's obviously where we probably need to start in terms of anybody's bias is thinking about it as a person as opposed to a piece of code. Um, my, my, my question to you is... Um, if Google, um, as an example, you mentioned Timnet, Timnet, and forgive me if the pronunciation is incorrect, um, three or four days ago, the other leading member of that team uh, in the AI um, department, so to speak, looking at bias, was uh, removed from their position. Um, if a company like Google is struggling, perhaps morally or ethically, with having that discussion, and the ins and outs of why those two people left, I can't answer, um, there was uh, various discussions around that. But what I would ask you is, what does a small tech company with five developers, how do they address uh, the maintenance? Um, and where do they start would be my question. Yeah, I think it starts from, I, I always go to education first because one of the biggest challenges is being willing to actually confront these head on. Reading, pick. You know, there are enough good resources out there. I think collectively as a team set up a biweekly or a monthly kind of all hands, if you will, and say, hey, listen, this month we're going to talk about bias or this month we're going to go down these things. Think of it as a book club, if you will, or a topic club. 
And the reason why you want to do this is that you learn so much in conversation. You learn about the nonverbals. You learn from your nonverbals with your development partners. If you're doing um, partner development, if you're doing any of this kind of uh, pair development and whatnot, you learn a lot from those kind of subtleties that you experience there. A lot of it is just being willing to have the conversation, regardless of whether you agree or disagree. And I think that's that's the important part. We're so afraid of disagreeing with other folks. Um, yes, I'll point to Google a little bit. Google had a consortium a few years ago where they tried to set up an ethical AI con, you know, um, group and they brought folks in and somebody from a, a known think tank that is, let's say, right leaning, I think it was Heritage Foundation, was invited to join it. And all of a sudden the thing fell apart. While you may not agree with what that Heritage Foundation does, the fact that they have a dissenting voice should not have negated the role of that consortium together. And I think we're so afraid of having dissent in our ranks that we're unwilling to confront what those, that dissent is. So with five people or 5,000, being willing to have the conversation, knowing that there's going to be disagreement is, is the first step towards, towards bringing this together. And it should foster unity because you suddenly realize that you know, this family, this little company, this, this idea that we're building is made up of all these different pieces, these different parts. And, and that's actually pretty fantastic and should continue that way. Excellent. Um, we, we, we obviously have to move on in a second, but there's a couple of questions that have, have come in. Um, Jason asked, how do you handle any bias you realize you hold when approaching a solution to an ethical AI issue? That's a whole debate in itself. But yeah. Dave, any, any quick answer? Yeah, I, I think it's being being willing to take it. Um, I'll say this in a kind of way that doesn't necessarily make sense, but it's kind of paradoxical in the same way. Take it personally. The fact that somebody is calling you out or the fact that you discover something, take it personally. Under, try to understand why that offends you. Why does that little bit and piece, why does that cause me to stay up at night? Go find it. Go again. Plug it into Google. Say, hey, Google, tell me why. What, what is this thing that I'm struggling with? And start that voyage of discovery. Again, you might not necessarily agree with the end result of that, but you're trying to discover what it is that triggered you to down that path, right? And that and I, that's, that's the first part of it um, that I can talk about, obviously. Um, yeah. So we'll start from there. No, but they're perfect. And, and obviously, I, I picked up on the fact it's not really a left thing. It's not a right thing. It's not a political thing. It's not a, a right or a wrong thing. It's a human thing. Yeah. We need to get that as a human-centered approach um, to understanding. Obviously, it's not necessarily whether it impacts you. It's whether it impacts everybody. Is that a fair reflection? Yeah, you are part of everybody. It sounds very new agey, but you are part of everybody. You're part of the community just as much as your neighbor down the hall is part of the community. These other businesses that you interact with are part of the community. And again, it goes back to what Rabbi Sachs said. When we start to take the focus off of I and we start to look at we, we suddenly change the worldview that we're operating on. I know that I can still do this job. I can still be part of Dell Technologies, right? <laughs> I'm one very, very tiny cog in a 150,000 plus person machine. But I start to be able to deal with the reality that I can start to impact change with just in my little locus of control here. And I'm going to focus that energy there. I'm going to take that and do that. I may not affect 150,000 people, but I can affect five people that I deal with. I can affect 20 people that I deal with and, and move from that, that point. Thanks for listening to this keynote on bias in AI and the following question and answer time. We hope you enjoyed your time and thanks for listening.